So Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24, if you've got something to write on and something to write with, you're going to be in good shape today. Uh, So don't you love that feeling when you realize you've been using something wrong all along and you didn't even know it? Uh, A few weeks ago, this thing popped into my head. I, I went down to Home Depot in Norwell and I parked right next to a beautiful black Lamborghini. Now, if this happens to be your car, forgive me for what I'm about to extrapolate uh, from that car's presence in the parking lot. Or if you know the owner of this car, you don't need to tell them that we talked about that car this morning. But at Home Depot, here is this high-power sports car. And I just thought, if I'm going to Home Depot and I've got cars to choose from, I'm probably not choosing the Lambo to go and run my errands in. Uh, You could do that with a Lamborghini. You can use it to go run your errands. It it can be the car that you take your children to school in, just one child at a time. It, It can be the car you take to stop and shop to buy one bag of groceries at a time. Um, You could do that. Technically, it's a car, and it can go any speed limit. It can go slow. It can go fast. You could just toot around town in it all you want to your heart's desire. You could do that, but that's not what that car was built for, right? That car's not built for thickly settled. It's built for the Autobahn. Uh, it can break the sound barrier. That, this car is meant to roar, to growl, to destroy asphalt, to go a thousand miles an hour. That's what that car's meant to do. So yeah, technically it's a car. It's also a rocket ship on four wheels. Yeah, you can drive it around town and run your errands, but yeah, that thing's meant for the racetrack to just blow the doors off of people. It's an unbelievable piece of machinery. And so it just struck me as odd. This is a car out for an errand uh, on a day like this. Uh, it's possible for us to use things not to their full potential. Not, and I'm not trying to say the owner of this car doesn't, like I know more about that car than that guy does. No, not at all. But I'm just saying it's possible for us to take things that are high octane, high power, have a specific purpose, and we use them far short of their intended potential. Case in point would be for the church, for the Christian, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's entirely possible for you and I to take this beautiful message the gospel, this good news, and to not use it to its full capacity, to not use it just in its basic form and function with which the church is intended to use the gospel. That word gospel gets used a lot around our church. And when we say that word, here's what we're referencing. The gospel is a message. It's a story. It's that message that God came to us in the person of Jesus. And this is good news. Jesus came to us. He died on the cross in our place for our sin. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, walked out of that tomb, and that by believing in him, trusting in his death and resurrection, you can be forgiven of all your sin and saved for all eternity. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's possible to get that message wrong, to corrupt the meaning or or the contents of that story. That's possible, and it happens a lot. 
But that's not our focus this morning. Our focus isn't on the content of the message. It's on the function of the message. What are we to do with that good news message? It has a function. It it has a basic thing it's supposed to do. And when we get it wrong, it's like we're running errands in the Lambo. It is meant for high-octane, life-change, world-change And it happens so often in the life of churches that we get the function of the gospel wrong. We don't engage it as we ought to, as the Lord intends for us to do. We shortchange it in terms of its power. We keep it low when it is meant to go to the corners of this planet to rescue people from their sin. And so we're going to read this fascinating interaction between Jesus and a Gentile woman in Mark chapter 7 today. It is a mind-blowing interaction. Jesus says one of the most, perhaps, abrasive things he says in all the Gospels to the woman in this passage. And in this short little scene, Jesus teaches the church today about the basic function of the Gospel, what we're to do with this message about him. So if we study this passage right, not only will we understand the basic function of the Gospel, But I believe we ourselves are going to be motivated to do more with the gospel for the sake of the lost. Our story today mobilizes the church. Our story today strengthens Christians. Our story today gives boldness to our witness. So you better buckle up because we're going to put the pedal to the floor today. And this story is going to show us how powerful and amazing and beautiful is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Jesus left that place. So that place is the region of the Sea of Galilee. He left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. This story is incredible. The exchange between Jesus and this woman is remarkable. And what we're going to do this morning, I want to show you from this passage two basic functions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But before we get there, before I articulate those two basic functions, I want us to take a few minutes to make sense of what we've just read. Normally we would just jump right into the thing we're talking about. We need to spend some time unpacking this exchange between Jesus and this woman. So Mark, the master storyteller that he is, never leaves us guessing as to where Jesus is on the map. So he starts off by giving us all the necessary details. Jesus has left the region of the Sea of Galilee. You'll remember from last week, Jesus had this run-in with some Pharisees 
and some religious leaders about what foods are clean to eat and which foods are not, and just a whole bunch of nonsense. So earlier in chapter 7, Jesus has this big run-in, and then Jesus, along with his disciples, they take off and they go to a city called Tyre. Now, Tyre is roughly 35 miles northwest of the Sea of Galilee. That's a pretty long jaunt on foot. Jesus and his disciples go all the way to this town. Tyre sits on the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. It has a sister city just a little bit to the north of it called Sidon. And that's probably how you're familiar with these towns. They're often mentioned side by side, Tyre and Sidon. Now in the Old Testament, these cities are present and they are massive hubs of trade and commerce. They're important towns there on the Mediterranean coast. And in the Old Testament, these two towns come to symbolize idolatry and paganism. They are Gentile cities, decidedly not Jewish, decidedly not Yahweh worshipers. And, and they represent all that Israel is not. One story from the Old Testament that might pique your memory. There was a wicked king in Israel named Ahab. He married a wicked queen named Jezebel. Jezebel is a Sidonian princess. She went to Sidon High School. That's where she's from. She comes in, takes up her throne in Israel, and she begins to promote in Israel, among God's people, the worship of the false god Baal. As a result of her wickedness and Ahab's wickedness, the prophets of God speak judgment against Tyre and Sidon. In fact, Isaiah chapter 23 begins this way. A prophecy against Tyre. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed and left without house or harbor. Multiple places, this city, Tyre, is put in the crosshairs of God's judgment. By the time we get to Mark chapter 7, Tyre is still one of Israel's most hated enemies. Now this isn't the first time we've heard of Tyre or Sidon in Mark's gospel. You remember vividly chapter 3 verse 8 that described how people from all over the region were flocking to Jesus. They'd heard of his miracles, his power to cast out demons, and people from all over are coming to see the miracle worker. And Tyre and Sidon are mentioned in that list of towns as places from where people are coming to see Jesus and experience his miracles. So why has Jesus gone all this way? Why has he hoofed it 35 miles on foot from the Sea of Galilee to Tyre? What's his purpose in going there? Look at verse 24. It tells us he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. So why does he go all that way? Jesus goes to Tyre to find rest. And while he's there, he also finds a woman of faith. Keep your eye on the page. Look at verse 25. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. So Jesus has gone to this region, I think because he wishes to remain anonymous, but his reputation as a healer has gone all the way to this Gentile pagan city. And this woman, whose name we don't know, 
She seeks him out. She's in desperate need. She's heard of Jesus. We don't know how, but she knows of him. And then Mark gives us some important details about this woman that we can't overlook. He tells us a couple of things. One, she is Greek. Two, she is Syrian Phoenicia. So here's what this means. To call her Greek, Mark is not referencing her ethnicity. Rather, what he's saying is that she is a Greek-speaking Gentile. Paul uses the term Greek in, in the same way in his letters. It's a reference to her primary language. She speaks Greek. She's a Gentile. To say that she is from Syria, Phoenicia, is to say that she's from this coastal region. She's from this Gentile district. Syria, Phoenicia is a northern part of that district. There's a Lebo, Phoenicia, that is a southern part. It's located in northern Africa. So Mark just gives us these geographic details so we can pinpoint where this woman is from. Here's what's most important. Even if we forget all the names of the places, what's most important is to remember this. She is not Jewish. She is a Gentile. She does not come from a good, wholesome background. She comes from a pagan background. Her life has not been spent looking for Yahweh or trying to abide by his laws. But she has heard of Jesus, and she seeks him out. And in her, we begin to see what faith is really like. She has a daughter who is demon-possessed. That drives her insistency on seeing Jesus. Can I tell you something that struck me as I studied this passage that I knew but I hadn't really marinated on? If I think that Satan will give my children a break because they are children, I am a fool. Do not think for a second that the names of your children are not known by our enemy. So mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, you better fight for your kids in prayer and surround them with gospel love and fight for their protection. He knows their names. In her Love and fervor and desperation for her daughter, she comes and falls at Jesus' feet and asks him to heal her. Look at verse 27 at how Jesus responds. Can I just tell you, if you and I were inventing this story, we wouldn't write verse 27 the way it's written. There wouldn't even be this type of verse. We would just say, Jesus loved the woman and he did what she asked. But look at what Jesus says. Verse 27 First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. So on a first read, this comes across to us as incredibly rude and insensitive on Jesus' part. Here's a woman begging for the healing of her daughter, and Jesus seemingly denies her request and calls her a dog all in the same breath. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, Jesus' response to this woman is an analogy. And in this analogy, the different parts have specific identities. So his analogy takes place at a dinner setting. They're seated around the eating area. Now, in, in this world, in this culture, they're not sitting at tables. They're sitting on the floor. They're reclined comfortably. Uh, but still, here they are seated at a dinner setting and you have children that are eating 
And then around the children are dogs waiting for kids to drop crumbs. Isn't it good to know that dogs in the first century are like dogs in the 21st century? Right? We have a little dog. Her name's Lulu. She's a Cairn Terrier. She's like Toto in The Wizard of Oz, only she's a blonde and not a brunette. And I'm telling you, if we're cooking in the kitchen, she's, she's there at our feet, just waiting on something to drop. And then when it's time to eat, she's sniffing around the underside of the table, just waiting for the opportune moment. And the moment something hits the ground, boom, it's gone before we can get to it. Lulu is right there on top of it. So this is the analogy. It's a dinner setting. The children are eating food. The family pets are present. Who are the children in this analogy? Well, the children are Israel. The the children in this analogy that Jesus gives are God's people Israel. In fact, in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to over and over as God's children. Who then are the dogs in this analogy? It's Gentiles. It's not Israel. It's this woman. So, It's shocking to us that Jesus might refer to this woman as a dog. And indeed, it was a serious insult in Jesus' day to call someone a dog. But there's a couple of points of understanding that might soften our approach to this. First of all, the Greek word used by Jesus for dog is a reference to a puppy or even a household pet, more so than some mongrel street dog. In fact, in the translation we read this morning, I think the translators help us when it quotes Jesus as saying, it's not right to toss the children's bread to their dogs. There's ownership of the dogs. Now, no self-respect in first century Jewish individual would have a dog as a pet that was gross. Gentiles were different. And so Jesus says, we're not going to throw the bread to their dogs pets to their puppies. A second thing that sort of softens this is that Jesus doesn't say the dogs will not eat. He only says the children must eat first. So theologically speaking, here's what Jesus has said to this woman. He's told her that salvation comes first to the people of Israel. That's the children. And these people are meant to be a light of revelation to the nations. This is God's plan. That the message of the gospel would come to Israel, a remnant would be called out of Israel, and then that remnant would be mobilized for the sake of the nations to proclaim the good news that in Jesus Christ, salvation is possible for all who believe. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 1, notably. He says that salvation is for the Jews first and then for the Gentiles. And since Israel is God's people, they're meant to be a kingdom of priests proclaiming God's salvation to the world. Why does Jesus respond this way to the woman? Why does he respond with this analogy? I think it's because Jesus is being intentionally provocative in order to draw out faith, to develop faith in this woman. And this is completely in line with how Jesus has operated this far in Mark's gospel. Remember, he puts his own disciples in the middle of a storm on the Sea of Galilee that they think will kill them. Time and again, Jesus is always in control, always orchestrates the scene. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing is a surprise. And I don't think this exchange entire is by accident or just a coincidence. He orchestrates the whole scene. And for the sake of this woman, he answers with an analogy so that she doesn't just respond to him as if he's a miracle worker, but that she would respond to him deeper with a sense of faith. 
She doesn't get the whole picture. She has no understanding of the cross. She has no full understanding of his identity as God the Son, the eternal God of all creation and salvation. She has limited, finite understanding. But what she has goes deeper than the disciples so far and certainly goes deeper than the religious professionals, the Pharisees, who have been hounding Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. Jesus is prompting her to faith. And how does she respond? Verse 28, she responds brilliantly. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So in this brilliant response, she tells Jesus that she understands there is indeed an order to these things. Jews first and then Gentiles. However, when the children eat, guess what? It's good news for the dogs. They can simultaneously eat the crumbs. They don't have to wait for some distant future. Israel can be blessed in the here and now by the coming of Christ, but the coming of Christ in the here and now is also for Gentiles, also for non-Israel. Salvation doesn't come in these massive shifts or for one group in this epoch of time and then another group in this epoch of time, but all at once, salvation is available and possible to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So what we just saw here is incredible. This woman does this sort of verbal sparring with Jesus. I don't think out of antagonism. She's so clever, and she's so insightful, and she is indeed a woman of faith. And Jesus responds in verse 29, I think, with a smile, then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. So we just saw a Gentile, pagan, unclean woman express faith in Jesus Christ. So what does this story teach us about the gospel and its basic function? The first basic function, quickly, of the gospel is this. It is global expansion. The gospel has a global trajectory. That means that the gospel is on the move, and it has people of all nations in its sights. So how is it that this story teaches us that the gospel has a global trajectory, that it has the nations as its target? Well, I want to take you back to what Pastor Stephen preached last week on the front end of Mark chapter 7. And if you weren't with us, listen close. I'll give you a real quick recap of the action earlier in chapter 7. Jesus is confronted by some Pharisees, some religious professionals. And they want to know why Jesus' disciples don't wash their hands in this ceremonial way before they eat. You see, in their tradition, if you don't wash a certain way before you eat, then you are, you are uh, making your food ceremonially impure, and then you're putting that impurity into you, and that puts you at odds with the Lord. That makes you unclean, unsuited for worship. And so they come in, and they're arguing for their tradition, and they're chastising Jesus and his disciples for not following this tradition. And Jesus eviscerates the Pharisees. He says, you're the ones Isaiah was talking about hundreds of years ago when he speaks the word of the Lord, and he says, these people, 
They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He utterly annihilates these religious people. And he accuses them of holding to the traditions of men rather than loving God. And he articulates specifically how they do this, how they justify immoral, unethical, ungodly behavior with religious explanations. It's utterly ridiculous. So after verbally kung-fuing the Pharisees, Jesus then explains the whole situation to his dense disciples. And in chapter 7, verse 18, if you've got the page open there, Jesus says to his disciples, verse 18, Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. And then Mark gives us this parenthetical statement, this explanation. He says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So what does this teaching about food being clean have to do with the gospel going to all nations? Fast forward to Acts chapter 10. And one day the apostle Peter is praying and he has a vision. And in this vision, a large sheet, something like a large sheet, lowers from heaven. And on this large sheet are all of these unclean animals. And God tells Peter in this vision, kill and eat. And Peter replies to God and says, no way. I have never eaten anything unclean in my life. I'm not going to start now. And God responds to Peter and says, what I have called clean, do not call unclean. The vision ends with a knock at the door and its servants from a Gentile Roman centurion named Cornelius saying Cornelius wants to talk to you, Peter, about Jesus Christ. And so Peter goes and he walks into Cornelius' house and he's surrounded by Cornelius' family. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 28, listen to what Peter says to Cornelius, this Gentile, and his family. He said to them, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Is that what happened in Peter's vision? Did God put a Roman centurion on the sheet in front of Peter and say, this man is clean, don't call him unclean? No. It was animals. It was food. But the lesson about food wasn't really about food. It was about the gospel going to the nations. It was about the very nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ that can't be contained or kept inside a sanctuary. Its very function is to go to the whole world, to people of every tribe and tongue and nation, and proclaim to them the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. The lesson about the food was not about the food in Acts chapter 10. It's about the gospel. And the lesson about the food in Mark chapter 7 was not about the food. It's about the gospel. Are you with me so far? What happens in Mark chapter 7, this whole scene with the food, Jesus applies it. Jesus shows what it means in his interaction with this Syrophoenician woman, with this Gentile woman. Those foods are clean. This woman is clean. The gospel is intended for all people from all places. 
for the Pharisees, the pure and righteous thing to do would have been to avoid Tyre altogether. I'm not going to Tyre. Oh, praise God, brother, for your wisdom and insight. I'm, I'm going to go around it. Oh, such spiritual wisdom and insight to maintain your purity. Those people under God's judgment, I will let them burn while I offer my sacrifices to the Lord. Oh, sister, how noble and wonderful you are in the eyes of God. That's how the Pharisees thought in this moment. Does the church today carry some of this same mentality? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes the church elevates the keeping of man-made traditions as if this is what makes us pure over the advance of the gospel. Sometimes churches would rather fight for comfort and maintain the beloved familiar rather than strive greatly for the sake of souls. But If we retreat from the world, then we fall in league with those of whom Jesus said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. So the church of Jesus Christ does not operate with a retreat mentality. The pure and righteous act is not to avoid the hard place or the hard person, but it's to advance with the gospel that calls people to faith. That's its basic function. That's what it is to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's to be consumed by the gospel that both saves and sins. You cannot divorce your salvation from your sending. They go hand in hand, brother. They go together, sister. The gospel of Jesus Christ is intended to go to every corner of this globe, even to your next door neighbors, in the hope that they would hear of Jesus Christ's love for them and place their hope in him for their own salvation. So the question is, are you advancing the gospel with your life? If you examine the way you live and speak in your relationships, are, are you using the gospel appropriately? Do you think about it appropriately? Do you understand it to be, uh, to be global in its focus, in its impact? And can I encourage you with this? Here's one of the easiest ways you can begin to use the gospel in its basic function. Many times we'll talk about witnessing and sharing your faith, and we do, about it, we do that in ways sometimes that might feel almost impossible to achieve. Like this is such a high thing. It, it takes a Navy SEAL Christian to come in and to be able to do this, and you've got to be able to answer every objection and to to stand firm in the face of every question, whatever. Sometimes we talk about it in ways that may seem like it's impossible for the common person to really get there and do this thing. And what we lose in all of that discussion is the incredible power and the massive effectiveness of a simple invitation to church. Do not treat an invitation to church as a lesser type of investment in a person's spirituality, as a lesser type of gospel proclamation. Not everyone is hardwired to automatically just jump into the fray and to spout Bible verses and verbally spar. Or what? Maybe the way you start on this path 
and start to use the gospel in the way it's intended is being intentional and persistent in inviting the people you know to church. And that's going to spark conversations. And you'll have a chance to talk about your faith in natural ways with those people. And it's not that I'm going to do or anyone else is going to do this work for you. I'm just saying, brother and sister, let's start with inviting people to church as a part of our regular weekly practice. Is your life advancing the gospel? It can happen in ways grand and ways simple. And the invitation to church can be one of those ways. There's a second basic function very quickly of the gospel. It has global trajectory. Second, the gospel saves sinners. Not a newsflash, is it? That's okay. We've got to soak in this for a while anyways. The gospel saves sinners. It makes disciples of all who believe. Here is a basic function of the gospel that is so profoundly true. And in our story, this woman teaches us what true discipleship is really like. She shows us some hallmarks of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. You'd think we'd learn these lessons from guys with names like Peter. But we learn it from this woman who has no name in the story, but she has faith. And that's what it is to be a true disciple. First and foremost is to have faith, to trust Jesus completely. This woman has exemplary faith. Her faith is persistent. She searches until she finds Jesus. Her faith is in the character of Christ, that he would have compassion for her suffering child. Her faith is in the authority of Jesus, that he alone has the power and right to evict demons. Her faith is in his word. When he tells her that the child is healed, she takes that word and leaves in the trust that the word is true. She shows us what faith is like. She also shows us that a true disciple of Jesus is humble. Her posture on her knees begging him is a posture of humility. And then when she speaks to Jesus, when she responds to Jesus after his statement about children and dogs, her statement also comes with humility. You see, she doesn't argue that this arrangement isn't equal. and She doesn't argue the value of Gentiles made in the image of God. She doesn't argue that she deserves bread just like the children. But in humility, she says, I don't need the loaf. I just need a crumb. That's it. Just that crumb would be enough just this little touch, just this little word, that's, that is sufficient to change everything. Jesus, that's all I need from you. So if you're going to come to Jesus, brother, sister, you have to come humbly. In Scripture, no one walks into the presence of the omnipotent, eternal, sovereign, glorious, holy God with attitude. They always come low, And the more they experience of God, the lower they become. But here's something true about God. When you come humbly to him, he promises to lift you up. Would you like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Would you like to know the new life that he gives? Then you have to come humbly. And when you do, you'll find that Jesus went further in humility than you can ever imagine The unlimited God took on flesh and became a man. And he humbled himself all the way to death on a cross. His death was an act of love in your place. The God of great compassion, of unfailing love. The holy, sinless God 
paid the price for sin, for your sin. And then three days later, he rose from the tomb, alive and victorious. He humbled himself so that you could be exalted if you would trust him, if you'd put your faith in him. This woman also teaches us that disciples of Jesus come from every imaginable background. Jesus came to Jews first, as he said, to call out that remnant that would follow him in faith. But in this woman, we see that disciples of Jesus come from very messy backgrounds. It can be hard to believe that sometimes, especially when we're aware of how gross our sin is and how big our sin is. But Psalm 51 tells us about the unfailing love and the great compassion of God for sinners and his mercy and cleansing power to all who come to him. Our woman is the least likely of disciples, but she is very much a disciple. In studying this, I was reminded of a couple of friends from many years ago. Their names are Nancy and David. They came into our church one day and Uh, you just knew on looking at them that they had had a hard life. David had tattoos creeping up his neck and down to the tips of his fingers. Uh, But their rough exteriors uh, faded away quickly to such sweet, sweet dispositions. Just an incredible couple. They had lived previously in California. Their 20-something-year-old son had been killed in gang violence. They left California for Kansas to get away and to start over. David could not work. His body was fighting his sobriety. Nancy alone could work. And so she worked in the butcher section, the meat section at our tiny local grocery store. She worked every hour that she could. But she arranged her schedule so that she could be at church on Sunday mornings. Oftentimes she would come in her work clothes. She'd worship and then hop across the street to the grocery store to get to work. And every time we talked, every time we prayed together, she and David spoke of the incredible faithfulness of Jesus Christ to them, though they had borne so much loss. And about once a month, Nancy would slip into the church office very quietly, and she would visit for a little bit with our secretary, and then she would empty a Folgers can of coins and loose bills. And this was her humble offering every month without fail. The world needs its Charles Spurgeons (laughs) and the world needs its Billy Grahams. But give me Nancy and David. They too are disciples. And you may come from some jacked up background and you've probably made all kinds of mistakes and you may look squeaky clean today and you know inside you're a total train wreck. Oh, you have no idea the cleansing power of Jesus Christ and how great his compassion is for you. He's not telling you get it together first and then come. He just says come because this is what the gospel does. It saves. It rescues. It lifts. It exalts. That's its basic function to the very core. In this incredible exchange, Jesus gives us this simple profound understanding of the gospel's basic function. It is for the globe and it rescues all those who come to Jesus in faith. I was reminded of something I saw happen in stories I heard. When communism fell 
in the early 90s, suddenly all these countries that had previously been closed to the gospel were open. And some Americans had in their sights the country of Albania. And Albania was a Muslim, communist, atheist country. And they loaded up and they went with a ministry organization, a well-known ministry organization, and they had the Jesus film in Albanian. And they went to all these little mountain villages. They mapped them out. And over the course of a decade, they hit every single one of these little communities with the Jesus video and with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And do you know what happened? Yes, you know what happened because you know what the gospel does in communist, Muslim, atheist Albania Hordes and hordes of people came to faith in Jesus Christ when they heard the gospel. And they call on the name of Christ and they were saved. And this missions organization that was previously outfitted and run by Westerners in Albania grew up Albanian disciples to run an Albanian ministry. And today that Albanian ministry is doing work in Turkey where Westerners can do so little work compared to Turkey's Albanian cousins. That's what the gospel does. The globe is in its scope. It saves sinners. And what it does in Albania and what it did in Tyre, it does on the south shore and beyond. What a magnificent picture of salvation we have in this story. In God's amazing grace and mercy, he lifts sinners so that we're no longer under the table, but we're now members of the family at the table. We read it just a little bit ago. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2.19. You're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. So brothers and sisters, children of God, let us feast together with our glorious Savior. Would you pray with me? Father God, this woman has taken us a long way today to help us understand discipleship, salvation, the gospel. I'm grateful for these plain yet nuclear truths that have to grip us and move us. Thank you for a gospel that goes to all nations. We here know this gospel because this is true. It's gone to all nations, so therefore it's come to us. We are the nations. Thank you, God, that this was your design from the beginning. And thank you that this gospel message saves all those who trust call on the name of Jesus Christ. Would you do that saving work even today? In this room, would you call out my friends who hear your voice and who are being pulled to faith. Give them the boldness and the confidence in you to say yes and to know your forgiveness and your salvation. And Lord, for us as a church, Help us to handle your gospel rightly, high octane, nations in view, power to save, give us voices to speak, and courage to go forward. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.